I was down there a month ago, before most of these talking heads were even paying attention to the Gulf. A month ago, I was meeting with fishermen down there, standing in the rain, talking about what a potential crisis this could be. And I don't sit around just talking to experts because this is a college uh, seminar. We talk to these folks because they potentially have the best answers, so I know who's asked to kick. Hi there, my name is David Oscar Marcus, and you're listening to For the Defense. That was President Barack Obama back in 2010, after the largest marine oil disaster in American history. It was the deep water horizon in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was a tragedy. 11 people died. Obviously, the huge environmental toll on the Gulf. Lots of documentaries and movies were made over the years, and Obama at the time set up a special task force. BP ended up pleading guilty to 11 counts of manslaughter and settled the criminal case for $4.5 billion and then paid almost $19 billion as a result of their corporate settlement. Two men also ended up getting charged, Robert Calusa and Donald Vadreen. They were the site managers on the Deepwater Rig. They supervised tests uh, that were performed on the rig and other drilling operations. And the big question in the case was, did Calusa act appropriately or... Was this a federal crime? And Kalusa turned to my close friend, David Gerger, to represent him. And Gerger is one of the great guys out there. He's a fantastic lawyer, one of my closest friends. He's totally zen. And I think you'll enjoy hearing how he defended this case. In fact, he and I tried a case together back in 2008 in South Florida, an antitrust criminal case. And I'll talk a little about that case at the breaks. But Let's turn to the big Deepwater Horizon trial. I've learned a lot from David Gerger over the years, and I think you'll enjoy this episode of For the Defense next with David Gerger. Thank you. So today we have David Gerger on the podcast. He is the man to see in Houston, and and not really just Houston, all around the country. He's handled some of the biggest cases that we've had, Enron, James Olis, Marine Hose, a little case here in the Southern District of Florida. And we're going to be talking today about a case, Deepwater Horizon, where David represented a man named Bob Calusa. And some of the people at the time said it was the biggest environmental disaster case in United States history and one of the biggest prosecutions in terms of resources for an environmental crime. And David represented Mr. Kalusa. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you. And I want to start with how I met David Marcus. Yes, sir. My buddy, who I talk to, what, every week during the year, sometimes several times a week. You mentioned the Marine Hose Trial, which was a price-fixing indictment in Fort Lauderdale, Florida that happened uh, in 2008. And uh, your, your listeners should know that this is a case where the government had wiretapped and videotaped a price fixing conspiracy in real time. It was in writing. There were rules. There were penalties if you violated the conspiracy. And I was hired to represent a man who was arrested in Houston and put on trial in Fort Lauderdale. And I got to go on a shopping spree because the company said, hire the best lawyer in Florida to try this case with you. 
And I met all these big shots. And then I met you, David. And there was no question that I knew immediately we could work together and uh, had the same thing going. And uh, it turns out that client was uh, not just not guilty, but truly innocent and went to trial and got the two word verdict. So it's good to see you, my friend. That was such a great trial. We could probably talk for a couple hours about that case and how much fun we had, but it's true. We became best of friends from that case. So I'm really excited to talk to you about Deepwater Horizon today because when it happened, David, um, people were just horrified at, at what happened. Yeah, so you'll remember 10 p.m., April 10th, 2010. The Deepwater Horizon is a drilling ship about 50 miles off the coast of New Orleans, goes up in flames. And uh, just a horrific fire, people jumping off of the rig to get into the ocean to escape. 11 men died, some of them just uh, horrific deaths. And then for 50, 60, 70 days, every day you saw oil spewing from the bottom of the rig, oil coming ashore in the marshlands of Louisiana, spreading out in the Gulf Coast. It was an, uh, the biggest environmental disaster that we had seen and a lot of pressure to bring a case about it. And lots of cases were brought, some against the company, BP, uh, against the number of individuals. You're a Houston lawyer. This case was in New Orleans. H how do you get the case, David? Well, uh, we've done a lot of environmental cases in my firm. And so the phone rang the next day and uh, someone asked us at the company to help Bob Calusa. And we had a policy at the time that we would take the very first case that came to us in a disaster, even if it meant it was not the major player or, or we, we, did, we didn't have the attitude, well, turn down a case hoping to get a bigger case. So later in the day, other people called who uh, at first glance were much more involved than poor Bob, uh, but we had already committed to help Bob. And we went to bed that night thinking, well, we are gonna miss out on being involved in a meaningful way because Bob Calusa was on the rig when it exploded. He was asleep when it exploded, but he was a temporary substitute working for the regular man who was supervising the rig for BP. So uh, boy, were we wrong how it turned out. I wanna just talk for a moment about the, the business side of the practice because so many people don't understand it. I mean. You were at a big firm at the time, I think, right? No, at that time, uh, we had our small firm called Gerger and Clark with Sean Clark and Dane Ball and David Isaac and Sammy Khalil and a uh, wonderful, wonderful team, but small. Okay, so, so it, it works different when you're at a small firm than at a big firm. If you were at the big firm, you later transitioned to a big firm. It would have been hard to hang on to what you called at the time a small player. He ended up not being, but the big firm would have put pressure on you. Hey, hold off. We could end up representing BP or one of the companies. Well, I never looked at it that way, even at the big firm. And now I'm back in my small firm. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, 
BP were, were the people who called us and the lawyers for BP knew us. Um, but that's how we did things. And that's how we still do things. And so you end up representing a man named Bob Kaluza. Tell us a little about Bob. Bob was uh, a veteran uh, driller in the oil business. He had worked at BP for a long time and other companies. And, uh, you know, a driller is an interesting life. Not everybody can do it. You live on a rig for two or three or four weeks. Then you go home for two or three or four weeks and then back and forth, back and forth. So Bob lived in Nevada uh, where he loved the weather, but then he would go out into rigs that are in uh, freezing places or uh, difficult places to live. And he'd been doing this for over 20 years. So you get the call from BP, you speak to Bob, you take on his case. Was this right the very next day or when was this? This was the very next day. And uh, it was chaos because we couldn't reach Bob for a while uh, to secure our representation. But eventually the, the, the survivors got back to shore and we were able to meet Bob. And How he did was, he survive? I mean, he was he was asleep at the time. I've read a little about it that he was, you know, woken up by the emergency sirens in pitch black. It's a miracle the man even survived. He made his way, fortunately, to a lifeboat and helped others get in and was able to make it uh, out in one of the lifeboats. Just out of curiosity, did that story come out at trial about how he survived the accident? It did because the government had a tape recording of an interview with Bob Calusa that had been taken right after the accident. After Bob was rescued and all the survivors were rescued, they were taken to a ship and the Coast Guard interviewed many of the survivors, including Bob, on tape. And so there we had in real time the story of Bob's escape, and also what he had seen on the rig the day that it exploded. And when you took on the case, did you know that people had died during this accident, during this explosion? Very soon, it was known that 11 men were missing and presumed dead. So I imagine there was going to be an enormous amount of pressure to bring some sort of case, not just because of the uh, oil uh, pouring into the Gulf, but because people had died. Well, that's true. You had, you had several things going on. Picture the nightly news back then, if you remember it, you had pictures of the oil every night. And not just the oil in the, the land, but the birds, the turtles, the dolphins uh, covered in oil. Mm. Then you had the president of the United States fly to New Orleans and stand on the beach and say that he's going to kick some ass. Those were his words of the people responsible. Mm -hmm. Then you have the attorney general create a task force and say that he's going to get to the bottom of it. And then you have a task force that gets appointed. And for your listeners, a task force is a, a dedicated group of prosecutors and agents for just this one case. And that is uh, often a recipe 
for um, poor judgments and uh, uh, you can you can foretell that cases are going to be brought. Right, because the task force, its existence is to bring cases. So even if the facts don't lend themselves to a case, and we'll talk about what the charges end up being in this case, but even if the facts don't lend, lend themselves to a prosecution, prosecutions uh, invariably get brought because that's the reason for the task force. Yeah, and, and look, you can uh, convince yourself that a case should be brought if that's all you're looking on and, and you're not looking at, at, at sort of the broader experience of life. If you're putting uh, this under a microscope, you can convince yourself a case must be brought. And it takes a lot of courage for a prosecutor to call up the attorney general and say, look, we've been down here for two years. We rented a whole office building floor. We've had 50 people spending millions of dollars and uh, we can't find anybody to prosecute. <laughs> right, so they, do end, they, they mm. end up prosecuting your fellow Kaluza. Um, there were 23 counts in the initial indictment, 11 for gross negligent homicide, one for each of the uh, people who died, 11 uh, uh, negligent homicide counts, and one count of water pollution. Criminal cases are not negligence cases typically. We tip, we deal with intentional cases. Somebody did something uh, intentional, rob a bank or uh, uh, steal money from somebody or something like this. Here, your client and others were charged with negligence. How do you deal with that, David? I had never tried a negligence case. Um, You're right, all of our cases usually involve some intentional or knowing uh, conduct where people are, are profiting from it and harming other people intentionally. So I had to learn about negligence. And how do you do that? Well, we had in Houston a great legend named Joe Jamail. And uh, he had tried more negligence cases than anyone. He was the king of torts. And, and I was lucky enough to know Joe because a few years earlier, he had asked me to try a probate case with him, a will contest case. And I told Joe, I don't know anything about probate court, but he said that would be okay. But we went to trial together and we won and, uh, it was a great experience. But after that, I had seen Joe every month. Joe, Joe at the end of his life had held court at various uh, drinking establishments around town and groups of lawyers would meet him there and have a scotch. So I called Joe and I said, I need to see you. Will you tell me about negligence? He said, come on over. And I'll never forget it, David. He said, let me tell you about negligence. You, they put in their evidence, you put in your evidence, and then you argue about it, and negligence is just persuasion. Hmm. And that was it. And that gave me a lot of confidence that there wasn't some secret to it, but he taught me negligence in 30 seconds. That's got to be scary, though, in a criminal case. It's all up to persuasion when you have a task force of prosecutors figuring out how to get someone liable for this. Um, 
and they charge 23 counts. People don't realize that in a criminal case, if there's one count of conviction, you lose. So if you win 22 of 23 counts, that's a loss for a criminal lawyer. That's right. And of course, your fear is that the jury doesn't take it that way. And I, I, I believe that uh, at least 11 of these counts were thrown in with no good basis for them at all. And uh, maybe the government was hoping the jury would disregard those and, and go with the government on others. And the jury would think it had compromised, but there's no compromise. One bullet kills you in a criminal trial. That's our biggest fear always in going to trial is the compromise verdict. The jury thinks, well, I'll give the prosecutor some, I'll give the defense some, and they end up reaching a compromise and they don't understand that our client will get sentenced uh, to prison if there's a compromise verdict. Luckily, in your case, um, although the case started out with 23 counts, you ended up with one count at trial. So tell us how you got from 23 to one, which was an enormous victory in and of itself. We'll be right back with how Gerger gets the case reduced from 23 counts to one in For the Defense next. I mentioned earlier that David Gerger and I tried a case together, the Marine Hose price fixing case down here in South Florida. And that case involved a criminal antitrust case in which the government alleged that the different companies that made marine hoses, the hoses that take oil from the bottom of the ocean, up to the surface or two ships got together and fixed prices and that there was a coordinator who was in the middle of all of it, helping uh, to set the prices and making sure all the companies got certain contracts. And David Gerger and I represented a guy named Francesco Scalia, a very charming Italian national young guy um, who was charged in the case before Judge Hurley, who gave us a wonderful trial and who was a really great judge down here in South Florida. The prosecutor, and I know I've given prosecutors a hard time on this podcast, but in this particular case, the prosecutor was great. He's a guy named Mark Rossman, and Gerger and I became friendly with Rossman after the trial, and he's one of our good friends now. And one of the reasons why is because he tried a great case and was very fair with us during the trial. So in that case, there was a trade show in Houston where all the different competitors came to meet and see the different things at the trade show. And the coordinator of the conspiracy had already been caught and worked out a deal and he was all wired up. And he told all the competitors to come to the conference room so they could discuss the conspiracy. And there were notes taken about the conspiracy. This was all on videotape. And after the meeting, everybody who was there at that meeting was arrested, including our client, Francesco. But before that meeting, the prosecutors had asked the a coordinator to write down everyone who was involved in the conspiracy. And it was a long list, but Francesco was not on the list and was not discussed by the coordinator. And our defense was that although he was at that meeting, he was merely present and not guilty. And we'll talk a little bit more about it. But many prosecutors would not have even recognized that list as Brady, would not have turned it over either intentionally or not. But Mark Rossman, being the good guy that he was, did turn it over and it became a central part of our defense and one of the reasons why Francesco was found not guilty. So that was the beginning of the Marine Hose case, the disclosure of that Brady material, which, you know, unfortunately, in many cases, prosecutors don't disclose everything and you have to fight. But in this case, it was disclosed 
And big shout out to our friend, Mark Rossman. Well, let's talk about the first group. Um, we had, uh, the first group was negligent homicide. Very dangerous because here you have serious, serious felonies just for negligence. And before the indictment, we had written a brief to the supervisors at DOJ explaining mm -hmm. why that statute could not apply to this situation. And we didn't get any audience. Uh, but that, that brief became a brief that we filed with our trial judge to throw out the 11 negligent homicide counts. And David, as you know, in, in a criminal case, we don't have summary judgment and a procedure before trial to knock out charges. But we had a terrific, terrific trial judge. And I can't speak enough about that because uh, well, well, not all judges are created equal. And Stanwood Duval was just a gem. This was the last case he tried, major case he tried. He'd been on the bench for two decades. And he agreed with us that negligent homicide cannot apply to this situation. It's a little technical, but, but why? Negligent homicide was a statute in the 1850s that was passed when steamships came in. And I really credit my, my, uh, the other lawyers we were working with, David Isaac and Dane Ball and Sean Clark for developing this theory and researching this history that negligent homicide only applies to people like the captain of a ship who is being negligent because in the 1850s, steamships had become popular and captains were racing on the Hudson River and smashing into each other and killing passengers and killing people on shore. And so Congress passed this law that said, if you're the captain of a ship or somebody like that and you kill people, it's a crime. Well, of course, Bob was not the captain of this drill ship and Judge Duval saw that and threw out those counts. Uh, the government appealed and we won that in the middle of trial during appeal or before the trial started on appeal. So that left negligent homicide charges. I mean, I'm sorry, gross negligent homicide charges. And here we made a dramatic decision. Um, while we were litigating this issue of the negligent homicide, the attorney general who made his famous press conference retired and went back into private practice and new senior people came into the Justice Department. And we made a decision to go to Washington and present to them why gross negligence doesn't apply. Those charges were ridiculous. Now, let me stop you for a second, because I want people to understand what decision you made here, because it's a very rare move that you made. So in a lot of cases, before a charge is brought, the defense lawyer has a difficult decision to make. Do I meet with the prosecutor and show my cards and try to convince him not to bring charges? Um, and that's a tough decision because the only real advantage a defense lawyer has is surprise. So, so if we know charges are coming, we typically don't like to go meet with a prosecutor and show him our cards. But once a charge is brought, 
it's almost impossible. I can't think of any cases where the Department of Justice then reconsiders and dismisses. But in your case, after charges are brought, you decide, let's go meet with the senior folks and explain why the previous people who brought this case were wrong. And you make a full presentation to show why they would lose those charges. Well, a couple of things. Even the trial lawyers had changed. We were coming off of this victory in the negligent homicide. And we did not make a full presentation because we even, even uh, in making this presentation, we, we started by saying, we're here to give you our third best defense. Um, and because just because of what you said, most of the time, if the defense tries to talk the government out of it at that stage by, by revealing defenses, the prosecutor will just work around it or change the charges or re-interview witnesses. And that, that's, that's more likely to happen. And then you've hurt yourself. Here, we took the gamble and we knew the new supervisors from our Enron days, very tough, but we thought that they were fair and we thought that the trial prosecutors would, would, would allow this to happen in a fair way, the new, the new trial prosecutors. So the argument went like this, gross negligence means that you know about a risk right there, you're aware of it and you recklessly choose to ignore it and then that causes death. Well, that was absurd. Bob Calusa and Don Vadrine were on the rig. They were 50 feet away from the blowout. They weren't trying to kill themselves or their buddies. And so the, the logic of these charges was absurd. And uh, sure enough, the supervisors agreed with that and, and dismissed those counts. And did you learn, when did you learn they were going to do it? I imagine you make the presentation, you leave the meeting, and you're waiting to hear back from them. Well, we, we do know that before we got back to Houston, they were knocking on doors to re-interview witnesses. And uh, we waited. And it took many, many weeks, if not months, before we had a decision. And so then you hear that they're getting rid of these counts, which leaves you with just one count remaining, a misdemeanor. That's right. And, and let me say, to, to dismiss those homicide charges and to, you know, they had to then go tell the relatives, wives, mothers of these men. So um, uh, I was sensitive to that. And we, we let them have their time uh, to do that because the, those men should not have died. Uh, this was a this was a huge tragedy on many fronts with many causes, but scapegoating Bob wasn't the answer. So then we have one count left, and if you can believe it, all of that oil pollution that that killed so much much wildlife and soiled the land was a misdemeanor. Unbelievable, and and so still with that misdemeanor there's gotta be an enormous amount of pressure, maybe now more than ever on the prosecutors to get a conviction. And 
they go to BP, the company, and get BP to plead guilty. And in the plea um, and in BP's papers, they point the finger at your client and your co-defendant as the bad guys. I mean, so not only do you have the government bearing down on you, you now have uh, your, your client's company pointing the finger at you. Right. Exactly. And how do you deal with that? Well, look, the, the government can bring enormous pressure on individuals and, and in the case of companies, companies, enormous pressure for those companies to plead guilty or to settle and pay money to the government. Um, you know, there are a lot of pressure points in the government has. And so th th this deal was negotiated with the company. The blame was put on the people on the rig, not at headquarters. And then the issue became, will this come into evidence at our trial? Because it would be highly prejudicial if the jury learned that the company pled guilty and for what we did. And did it come in a trial? Was the, was the plea where BP said, we're guilty. And the reason we're guilty, of course, a company's not guilty for company actions. It's guilty for what people do at the company. So B BP pleads guilty, agrees to pay tens of billions of dollars with a B and says, we're guilty because of Gerger's client, Kalusa. So does that evidence come in a trial? No. Now, the government tried to get it in, and uh, th th they wanted the jury to know that the company and later on our co-defendant pled guilty because they knew that that would spill over onto us. But once again, Judge Duval, uh, thank God, saw that that would be unfair, and he kept it out. I don't think you can use spillover in this case, Gerger. I don't think you can say spillover. No, that's right. That's right. So I read it would swamp us. That's right. I read the openings. I found the prosecutor's opening fascinating because she, of course, started out with the disaster, right? Starts out with how terrible the disaster was. And of course, you must have anticipated that. But she almost soft sold the culpability of your client. She said she came right out at the very beginning and said, look, Kalusa's not the reason this happened. He's just one of the many reasons. And I thought that was an interesting strategy because typically prosecutors try to oversell um, and not undersell. And it seemed to me that the prosecutor did a pretty good job of, of trying to keep this in perspective in her opening. That's right. And our judge, who was so good, um, did require us or, or persuade us, I should say, to get together with the government before the trial and go over the exhibits we were each going to admit. Um, that ended up being helpful to us, but it also made us really show the government what papers we were going to be using. So by the time she gave her opening statement, she knew that we were going to focus on the other causes because part of negligence is not just, you know, did our client uh, uh, fall below the job he should have done, but did he then cause 
this catastrophe. And there were so many other causes and so many other companies that were at fault. She knew that we were going to get those into evidence. And, and so she didn't want to oversell her fears. And can you tell us a little, so we have some perspective before we start talking about the trial, what was Kaluza's job on the rig? What was he responsible for? And what did he know when he went to sleep that night before the rig exploded? Yeah. So um, we call it the BP Deepwater Horizon case. But the Deepwater Horizon as a drilling ship was a drilling ship that was actually owned by a different company called Transocean. And Transocean provided the equipment and the crew that was drilling wells. BP owned the oil, BP had the deep pockets, BP was the richer company, so BP was always gonna be the focus of DOJ. But 90%, 99% of the people on that rig were not from BP, they were from Transocean who were operating it, they were from Halliburton who was pouring cement, and BP simply had two, uh, you might say, representatives on the rig, Kaluza and Vadrine, to watch over the work and see that Transocean and the other companies were living up to their contract to drill these wells. So that was his job. As far as what he knew, uh, Bob was doing that job on a different rig until five days earlier when the regular uh, man, uh, one of the two men at the Deepwater Horizon had to go home and Bob was sent over to the Deepwater Horizon to fill in as a substitute. So he would work a 12 hour shift and then Vadrine would work a 12 hour shift. Um, and that was his job on the rig. So it's interesting, right? So he comes over just a couple days before, um, he's working 12 hour shifts, I think from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. He stays up from what I read past his 6 p.m. shift because he's trying to work with Vadrine, the night shift guy, to make sure everything's okay. So why does he stay up past his 6 p.m. Uh, off time? Sure. Well, he first, let me tell you, Bob is an extremely conscientious man. And uh, when the night shift man comes on, Bob doesn't just leave. He makes sure there's a transition to explain what has happened in the last 12 hours. And when the shift changes, uh, they're in the, the crew is in the middle of doing a test on the well. And Bob wants to ensure that Vidrine is brought up to speed about the progress of this test, what's been going on to make a smooth transition to the night shift. So Bob is, is staying late on his shift to make sure that that happens. Um, and he stays up until about 8 p.m. or stay, stays at the rig floor until 8 p.m. And that's when he's satisfied that the transition has been made and he goes to bed. And then of course he gets woken up with the explosion and is taken to safety. And one of the things we've talked a lot about on the podcast and in, in previous interviews is 
how to make the decision about whether to call your client. Now, here you have a guy in his 60s who's never had a criminal problem before, who um, has been working on rigs, who has explanations for why he did what he did, but you end up not calling him as a witness at the trial. Can you explain why you didn't call him in this case? We'll hear why Kalusa didn't testify and for the defense next. The decision about whether your client should testify is always so difficult. Kalusa didn't testify and he won. And in that Marine Hose case that David Gerger and I tried, we actually called Francesco Scalia, the young Italian national, to explain how he could be at that meeting with all the other conspirators but not be guilty. And when we were preparing him, it became clear to all of us that he shouldn't be prepared line by line. One, he wasn't a fluent English speaker, so it was going to sound too rehearsed. And he was such a funny, spontaneous guy that we didn't prepare all the questions and answers with him. Now, this was a huge risk and something that neither David Gerger or I have ever done in the past. We usually prepare and prepare and prepare so that the client is ready for anything, especially on direct, right? Because that's where you can go over the questions and answers. You have to be careful that it doesn't sound too rehearsed. But with most people, that's not a problem. But we were concerned with Francesco that it would be such an issue. So we didn't prepare him for each question, each answer. And of course, when David started questioning him, the main question was, why didn't you leave that conference room when they started talking about the conspiracy? And Francesco answered, I should have left. And David said, I know you should have left, Francesco, but why didn't you leave? Davide, I already answered your question that I should have left. Now, of course, we're all smiling. The jury smiling. Judge Hurley smiling. Gerger doesn't really know what to do at this point. He asks him again, tried again with Francesco. And Francesco turned to the judge. Judge, what am I? A crazy boy who jump on the middle of the table? And at that point, Hurley and the jury just started laughing. And Gerger and I were laughing. Even the prosecutors were laughing. It's always been known as the crazy boy story with us, Gerger and I talk about it all the time. It was unscripted. It was spontaneous. Francesco charmed the judge and the jury with that answer. And it was one of the great moments of trial. And I'm sure uh, the reason, one of the many reasons that he walked in that case. That is a very tough decision. And, and let me say, Bob was very engaged in the whole defense. <clears throat> very smart man, very experienced. And he was briefing us and writing us memos. But when, when Bob was rescued after the escape from the rig, the Coast Guard interviewed Bob, I mentioned that, on tape. Mm -hmm. And the government made the decision during trial to play the tape recording of Bob. And the government thought that it showed that Bob was saying some things that didn't make sense and would show that he was negligent. Well, we heard that tape and we said, no, that shows a man who's been up for now 36 straight hours. He's escaped from a burning rig and he sits down voluntarily with the Coast Guard and answers all of their questions. And he's describing what he had seen on the rig before the explosion, before he went to bed. 
And it shows that he's completely sincere, completely earnest, trying to be helpful. And so the jury got to hear Bob's testimony from the, the time, not four years later, trying to remember it. So, so in a way, he testified through the tapes. He testified through the tapes. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. You know, you, you asked earlier, how does a case like this get brought? And what are the pressures that, are, that come to bear? In every disaster like this, there is a big problem with hindsight. And, you know, this, this is one of the problems of the task force. They come in and they're looking back and they think they see what caused the accident. And then human nature is such as to say, well, now we know what caused it. You should have foreseen that. Therefore, you were negligent or even worse. Right. And here we had Bob telling the Coast Guard in real time what had actually happened, not in hindsight, but that day, you know, what he had seen in the hours before the explosion. And that's where you need to put the jury is back at the scene before the explosion. You talk about hindsight. This is an interesting phenomenon in lots of cases where the government or whoever is is going after the client says it should have been done differently. Um, looking back, obviously it should have because it blew up. And I think you've referred to that many times as what's called hindsight bias. How do you overcome hindsight bias in a trial like this? Well, let me let me start by saying investigators should overcome hindsight bias when they're deciding whether to bring a case. Very hard to do. And very hard to do. But if they want to seek justice and seek the truth, that's what they should do. Now, in a trial, remember the rig blows up at 10 and the government pointed to a specific act of negligence at 8 p.m., two hours earlier. And so our job at trial is to put the jury back to 8 p.m. What happened at 8? Not what happened at 10. We know the rig blew up. But the challenge is to put the jury back in time, 8 p.m., before you know there's going to be a blowout. That's the key. Right. I, I like looking at hindsight bias in sports analogies, right? So Monday morning quarterbacks always say uh, they judge the result, the decision to go for it on fourth down when it doesn't work out. Oh, obviously they shouldn't have gone for it on fourth down. But when we talk about hindsight bias, you have to put yourself in the coach's shoes at the time he makes the call uh, and why he made that decision, not judge the result, judge the action at the time. And so in doing that, many people want to hear from the client. And in this case, I guess you had the tapes to put them in his shoes at that exact moment. That's right. But we also had other people from the rig who testified and uh, all, for the, all from the government. The government called several workers from the rig who were there that night to testify. And uh, this is a good illustration of hindsight bias versus put the jury back in time. So for example, uh, they would call one of the Transocean supervisors and the government asked that supervisor, now, um, 
At 8 p.m., Mr. Pedrin and Mr. Kaluza saw some pressure on the drill pipe and they let work go forward. That was the supposed negligence. And they would ask these people on the rig, how certain do you have to be that it's safe to allow drilling to continue? And do you have to be 100% certain? And the witnesses would say, well, yes, you have to be 100% certain. So what do we do with that on cross? Well, these people who were testifying knew that, that the drillers had died, had put their lives on the line based on what they also saw the pressure. Four men who saw the pressure died. And so in cross, the, the question is not how, how certain do you have to be 100%. The question is more like this gentleman who perished, was he a good driller? Yes, he was. And when you say 100% certain, don't you really mean you have to be as certain as you think you have to be to move forward? And they must have thought it was as safe as it had to be. And of course, they would then say, yes, that's a better way of putting it. Right. And that tells the jury what's really in people's mind at the time. They, they, nobody goes forward with drilling when they think it's unsafe. So one of the people who testified and was able to testify about what happened at the time was your co-defendant, Don Vidreen. Now, Vidreen was fighting the case with you all the way up to trial. And right before trial, um, he decides to plead guilty and to put ourselves in his shoes um, and not use hindsight bias. He was only charged at the end with a misdemeanor and offered no jail time. How, why did he decide to plead guilty, um, you know, as opposed to you deciding to go to trial? Let's put ourselves in, in Vidrine's shoes. Well, of course, most people plead guilty uh, in, in order to get leniency or accept responsibility if they think they were guilty. Don Vidrine, we learned, uh, had cancer, so he's ill. And I never spoke to him about why he pleaded guilty, but I, I have to assume that at the end of his life, he wanted to spend his last months or years that he had with his family, guaranteed not to be in prison, um, and, and guaranteed not to have the stress of a trial. So he pleaded guilty. And he's, by the way, the night shift man, just to remind everybody. So your client, Kaluza works 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then Vadreen takes over. He's on duty when the rig explodes. So right. obviously um, a critical witness in the case. And your uh, colleague for, for all these years preparing. And then he pleads guilty when? A couple months before trial? That's right. And... You know, we've all been in this position where you're, you're preparing for trial with your co-defendant and you, maybe you've split up the tasks that you each will carry at the trial. And uh, all of a sudden the co-defendant pleads guilty and you realize your team has to do it all. And uh, Vidrine had a marvelous lawyer, Bob Havens. Bob is as big as a redwood tree and, and he's an such an imposing presence 
in the courtroom with a Baton Rouge, Louisiana accent. And, and when I was so looking forward to watching Havens in action because, you know, he, he, when, when it's his turn, he struggles to get up. He's so big and, and, and he's huffing and puffing and he rises up in front of the jury like a tree and the jury's looking at him, their eyes are going up and then he starts and Havens doesn't stop uh, until the witness is apologizing or agreeing with him or crying or something. And we didn't get to see Havens in action, but, but as I mentioned, Sean Clark, fabulous trial lawyer on our team and Dane Ball and David Isaac picked up the slack and we got it done. So one of the things that's always difficult and interesting to me is when you have someone, a co-defendant who ends up pleading and cooperating, in this case, he agrees to be a witness against Kaluza, against you all. Um, and obviously they end up meeting with the government a number of times. And as defense lawyers, we always ask, let us meet with you and let us talk to you and let us find out what you're going to testify to. And many times we're faced with the response, sorry, we can't talk to you. We can only talk to the government. It makes me crazy when I hear this. Um, did Vadreen agree to speak to you? And shouldn't co-defendants um, or anyone really who agrees to plead guilty, shouldn't they speak to both sides? It, it's, it's maddening to me. Yeah, they should, but it doesn't happen. And, and they don't because they perceive that it will somehow upset the government or now they're on the government's team. So they, they, they're not on your team. I think witnesses are just witnesses. They're not the government's witnesses, but we usually don't get to talk to them and we can't force them to talk to us like the government can. Um, you're right. So Vadrine, in this case, he's been working with you all these years. He agrees to plead guilty. He starts meeting with the government. You don't know what he's going to say other than uh, the preparation that you've had up to that. And there was a critical motion that you file with the judge, which is just like the BP plea of guilty, you don't want Vadrine's plea of guilty to come in because you don't want the jury to hear that this man uh, pled guilty. Now, the government... How did they react when you filed this motion? What did the judge do? Yeah, so they didn't like it at all. Of course. Like the BP plea coming in, the government wanted the jury to know that our coworker, Don Padrine, who, who was on shift, pled guilty. And that would infect us and prejudice us. And of course, often in a criminal trial, uh, a witness pleads guilty in exchange for leniency and makes up a story about the defendant. And the defendant wants to cross-examine the witness and say, you are lying about me in order to curry favor with the government and get leniency. And, and uh, you know, we've had, we've had clients get everything from leniency to sex, to money, to furloughs, to freedom and everything else. Right, David? So, uh, and that's a, that, that like a dog goes for a bone, a cooperator will go for leniency. And uh, 
it's really not much trouble to lie a little bit on the stand if that's what you're going to get. But here, we didn't want that. And I think in a lot of white collar cases, you don't want that. Um, you, you know, the fact that one person pleads guilty doesn't even mean that he is guilty. It's, and it sure doesn't mean that anyone else is guilty. So um, we wanted to exclude that guilty plea. And that meant that we had to promise to limit our cross-examination of Don Padrine. Um, and once again, the judge Duval, in his incredible wisdom, saw that it would be very unfair for us if the jury heard about Padrine pleading guilty, and he kept that out of evidence. So it's interesting because it limited limited our cross examination. Right. And the reason it's limited is because if you start to impeach him, if you start to go after him, the judge might say, well, now you've opened the door so that the prosecutor can get back into the plea. And, and lots of times prosecutors, um, even though our instinct is to crush the witness, to show all the things that you talked about that they're getting uh, for pleading guilty, the prosecutor likes to, in, in redirect, come back and say, but you've promised, what have you promised? I've promised to tell the truth. Um, you know, why are you here? To tell the truth, those sorts of answers. So you had to be really, really careful not to go after Vadrine um, and, and impeach him. And instead, what did you do on cross if you couldn't go after him for what he said on direct? Yeah. Um, we, we had a sense that Vadrine also, like, like, like Bob, Vadrine did not think that he had really done anything wrong, certainly not intentionally. We couldn't ask him that. We couldn't say to him, Don, uh, what did, you didn't do anything wrong, did you? Because that would open the door. All right, so to answer your question, we simply asked Don, go back to 8 p.m., tell us what you saw at 8 p.m., what did you do about it? Who else was there? Uh, uh, someone from Transocean was there, a good man, one of the men who perished. Tell us about that man. Mm -hmm. Well, he was experienced. You knew him from this rig. What did you all discuss together? Why did you move forward? And I guess this, I guess I should explain what was the supposed negligence at 8 p.m. At 8 p.m., the crew saw some pressure on the drill pipe. Now, the government would later say that was a sign that a blowout was coming. Well, what we knew was that Don Vadrine had opened the drill valve a little bit and the pressure bled off and went away. And then the pressure went down to zero. And so Don was convinced that whatever that pressure was, it, it uh, didn't have a good explanation for it, but it went away. And if it had been a blowout, it would have kept coming up. Okay. And uh, Don was able to explain that on the stand, that he opened the drill valve, the pressure bled off, other people saw it. Don thought that, that this was not a dangerous situation, closed up the drill pipe, watched it for a while, and then went about his duties. 
So it was simply a matter of, again, take the jury back to 8 p.m. And, you know, what did you do at 8 p.m.? What did you do at 8.01? What did you see at 8.02? Really painstaking. So our instincts as criminal defense lawyers so often is to be aggressive, the pit bull. Let me tear this witness to shreds, especially someone who switched loyalties at the last second and went over to the dark side and, and is going to testify against us. You know, one of the great things about, about your lawyering, David, is your demeanor and the way you are with jurors and the way you are with witnesses. And so in this case, especially with this witness, um, you had to really embrace him, um, even though, you know, there must have been some debate on the team about whether to go after the guy or not. That's true. Um, but we thought he was a good man who would tell the truth. And he did. So let me ask you also, apparently from reading the trial, there was all this um, mystery about a phone call that was made from the rig to BP, to the headquarters, um, back on land, right? This was the headquarters back uh, in the States. And so what happens um, with that phone call? And tell us a little about that, because that was a lot. There was a lot about that going into the case. Yeah, <clears throat> right. So you understand this drilling ship is literally floating in the ocean, 50 miles offshore. But everything that's happening on the rig can be monitored from headquarters in Houston. Um, and we learned early on in the case from the phone bill, phone bills that there had been a call at 9 p.m. from the rig to the senior drilling person in the Houston headquarters at his office. Okay. Yes. And we didn't know what was said during that 10 minute call, but we figured out it was Don Vadrine talking to the senior drilling engineer in Houston. Now, why would they be talking at 9 p.m. You know, and we always suspected that if the dream had called headquarters to say, we saw some pressure at 8 p.m. and that headquarters had looked it up on their computers and told Don that everything was okay, that that would be a huge piece of evidence for us because what else can you do? You're on the rig. You call headquarters. And that would be the answer to the question, well, you should have done more. No, I called headquarters. Okay. So uh, come to find out that drilling man in Houston, the drilling engineer in Houston had given a statement saying that in that 10 minute call, Vidrine had never mentioned pressure on the rig and they were talking about other things. Uh, you know, he didn't want to be associated with knowing about the pressure. Of course. So, so well, we didn't, we didn't believe that. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was happening during that 10 minutes. And? And the first thing we did, we got our hands on the actual computer desktop that the man in Houston was using in his office. And we hired a really good computer expert to, to look at it. And we asked that computer expert, can you see 
what was happening. In other words, we were hoping that the man in Houston would have logged in to the Deepwater Horizon and seen the eight o'clock data. And then we could prove that Vedrine had talked to this man about the pressure at eight o'clock, right? Well, instead what we found is that right during the phone call, the senior engineer in Houston is planning a vacation on Continental Airlines and he's picking his seats and he's picking a seat for a family member and this sort of thing. And you could time that to the call from the rig. We, we, we called it the call for help, the cry for help from the rig. This man in Houston was messing around, planning a vacation at his office at 9 p.m. And so that made us think that that man wasn't paying attention. Now, the dream is called as a witness. And while we did not know exactly what he would say, we had a sense that it would be okay to ask him about this phone call. And we did, and that was a very dramatic moment because we build up this phone call, the cry from the rig to the senior engineer in Houston. And sure enough, Don, who was now a government witness, explained that he did tell the senior engineer about the 8 p.m. pressure. And the reaction was, well, if it was trouble, you would have seen it. You would have seen something different. So, so that, that was a tremendous moment. Amazing. Vedrine ends up being a defense witness about the call, it sounds like, on Cross, explaining that he does cry for help. He calls headquarters. Headquarters, you learn through the computer, is not paying attention. They're doing their vacation tickets and says, don't worry about it. Vadrine, everything's okay. How does the government deal with that evidence? Well, they don't. They, they, there's nothing to do. And they did not call as a witness the drilling engineer from Houston to give a different story um, than Vadrine or to contradict Vadrine. They decide not to put him on the stand. It sounds that if someone was negligent, it was much more the man in Houston than the folks on the rig. Well, there were, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to make that judgment because there were so many confounding causes that happened here. You know, um, and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, hindsight bias, why Bob Calusa? You know, you could tell a story that BP did not maintain this rig in good order or Transocean did not maintain the rig in good order and that that was the cause. In particular, the blowout preventer failed to work during the blowout. And it turns out it had not been serviced at this year. The captain of the rig who worked for Transocean was not trained and was not properly licensed. And he could have taken action to save the rig, but he didn't. And he testified uh, to, the, to the government before, gave, gave statements to the government that he didn't know what he was supposed to do. There's some indication that the cementing company 
put the wrong cement in the well. You could tell a story that the regulators had excused a lot of uh, poor compliance before, before this happened. Um, it's like that movie Rashomon by Kurosawa. A, a murder happens. You tell the story from four different angles and they're unrecognizable. And this, this is one reason why maybe nobody should have been charged criminally with this case. And, and of course, certainly not Kaluza. He, he was uh, an innocent man who got caught up in this. And sometimes, I mean, and this is the trick in, in our defending folks, especially in a disaster like this, an accident is just an accident. And sometimes that's the bottom line to these things that there isn't a criminal actor. There's just sometimes accidents. And, you know, it makes me want to, to tell you a little bit about Bob, who I spoke with before coming on your show. I would not appear without Bob's blessing. He was such an inspiration. Imagine being charged with a crime, serious crime. Um, and it was an accident. And yet you are caught up in it and charged. The penalties that you're facing are so draconian. The forfeiture, restitution, fines, imprisonment. I don't know how Bob managed to handle it as well as he did, but he was positive, he was helpful, except for always, why did I get picked for this prosecution? And it's not a question we, we could ever have a good answer for. I don't think people realize out there, and this is again, one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast is what it's like to get charged with a crime. It's not just you're facing the federal government, but everything in your life is affected. Your, your financial life is affected. Your family life is affected. Every part of your life is affected. And as the lawyer, right, you have all of this on your shoulders when you're representing, especially an innocent man. Forget about people who may have done it, but an innocent man like Kalusa. Yes, and and uh, y you know there are different kinds of clients. Some are wondering, uh, you know, should I weigh the the uh, costs against the benefits and just throw in the towel and plead guilty and try to get leniency? And 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 a lot of clients are always weighing that balance. With Bob, the beauty was there that was never a consideration. Bob knew that he was innocent and he was going to trial. And, and in a way that, that made it a, a, he was a wonderful client in that way. There was no hand wringing about, should I take a lesser charge and do something I don't believe in? Amazing. And so one last question about the trial itself before we sort of get on to the verdict and what happens afterwards. But this is so complicated with the cement and the rig and things that even you had to become an expert at. Forget about the jury in a couple of days having to learn all about this. So in a case like this, you wanna do animations, demonstratives um, to try to make the very complicated understandable for the jury. How do you 
decide what demonstratives to use? How do you get to a point where you can explain uh, drilling and and uh, the rigs and how you uh, use blowout preventers and all this? How do you explain all of this to a jury? We'll be right back and answer that question next on For the Defense. It's always a very difficult decision trying to figure out how much tech to use in closing, to use a PowerPoint, blowups, animations, how much do you use and are you gonna lose the jury if you don't use enough? Are you gonna lose them if you use too much? In any event, in that Marine Hose Scalia trial that we've been talking about at the cut-ins, one of the main arguments we were making is that the snitch was willing to lie for the government because he was given his liberty. He was given a free pass and he was also given the money back. So he had earned about $7 million from all the different competitors in the case and the government only made him forfeit $100,000. So he was able to keep almost $7 million. So David Gerger wanted to show the jury how this was in the closing. We, we were gonna split the closing. He was gonna do the first half and I was gonna do the second half. And so he takes, he got $7 million in fake $100 bills and put it under a huge sheet in front of the jury. And he was gonna pull the sheet off and then put $100,000 on the government's desk to represent. That's all they took and they let the coordinator keep the rest. And when Gerger did that, the judge sent the jurors out and said, you can't do that kind of demonstrative in my courtroom. And you know, sometimes things backfire like that and we all get embarrassed and you have to laugh at yourself and deal with it. And so David put all the money away uh, for a couple minutes and um, he smiled to the jury when they came back and said he should have asked for permission to do it, but then he quickly came back and said, can you imagine all of the money that co that coordinator has in a Swiss vault somewhere and how many Swiss vaults it would take to keep the seven million dollars? And the jurors knew exactly what he was talking about. And they smiled and they walked Scalia. It was actually a great moment of humility where David brought them back to his side. Let's hear how he dealt with the Calusa trial in For the Defense next. Uh, this is a funny story. We hired a very fancy animation company <clears throat> that was able to make a beautiful animation. And, and uh, I credit uh, Dane and uh, Ball and, and David, Isaac and Sean for this. Um, you know, where you could zoom into the rig in an animation and it would take you all around the rig, which is the size of a football field, length and height and width, and then would take you down the drilling pipe 5,000 feet to the ocean floor. And there would be a picture of the blowout preventer, and how it's supposed to work and how it should have closed, but it didn't. And this, this animation was, was fantastic. Um, but the funny story is, we never could come up with a good way to show that bleeding off of the drill pipe pressure, you know, that I described earlier, that at 8 p.m., the critical time, the dream saw pressure, everybody saw pressure, and he bled it off. Sean Clark, among his, his other uh, great skills, at that time was, uh, was uh, drank more Diet Coke than, uh, than you could uh, fit in the corporate. And one day on a break, <clears throat> we were passing by a Coke machine. He got a bottle, a screw off bottle, and he 
screwed off the top of the Diet Coke and it bled off the pressure. It went and then stopped. And we looked at each other and we said, that's it. That's worth more than the thousands of dollars on this animation. That is what happened at 8 p.m. And that became the demonstrative that we used in closing and in our cross-examination of Vedrine. It's like this little Coke bottle. Psst. And did Vedrine go with you about it? Did Vedrine yeah. go with you? Yeah, because, you know, uh, you know, like, like our O.J. Simpson phrase would have been, if the well doesn't flow, it's not going to blow. And when that, when that drilling, when that pressure bled off and then stopped, that's what showed Don Vedrine that a blowout was not coming. And there had been some kind of trapped pressure like in a Coke bottle and it bled off. So you use the Coke bottle. Yeah. Use Vedrine. The trial goes uh, pretty quickly. This isn't a three or six month long trial. I think it's just a couple of days, the trial. Nine days. Nine days. Um, you close, the jury goes out. Were you expecting a fast verdict, a slow verdict? Did you have a sense or do you ever have a sense of how quickly the jury's going to come back? I've given up trying to yeah. that. Um, but we, I think we ended around 5 p.m. And the jury can set its own schedule. And we got a note that said the jury wants to deliberate that night. And we thought, well, that's funny. So, but that's what they did. Now, the verdict came back that night about one hour later. And, you know, lawyers always uh, try to brag if they get a quick verdict. We, we always say that one hour included moving their cars. <laughs> right. Because, you know, New Orleans uh, parking uh, the, the marshals and the judge wanted the jury to move their cars back closer to the courthouse. So they had a verdict. And, and I guess once they came back and we knew there was a verdict, I thought they wouldn't convict us without looking at the tape recording and more of the evidence. So we were hopeful. Um, so, but we want us, we want the record to be clear. It was really a half hour. Not a <laughs> so, so you get this quick, we'll call it still an hour verdict and it's not guilty. And I've talked about this with some of the other defense lawyers. I mean, I, I almost feel when you get enough guilty, it's like the Coke bottle twisting off. It's like a relief. Uh, the pressure just sort of fizzes out. Um, it's not a huge party. What do you guys do after you win? Is it more like the Coke bottle or, or do you have a big party? What do you guys do? No, we were staying at a hotel two blocks away with a, a big team. And um, we went back. We, we, we had everybody uh, in the lobby. We ordered some food and some drinks and had a, a pretty quiet dinner. We, you know, our, we had put on our evidence the day before, which consisted of three expert witnesses. And they were still there. Um, and it was an early night. It wasn't a big celebration. You know, when I first started, I, I was in an office called Foreman de Guerin, and Percy Foreman had passed away 
by the time I started, but he was still getting more mail and phone calls than I did. And, and there was always a Percy Foreman story. And Mike DeGaran would say, if you had a big loss, you'd come back to the office and Percy would say, well, what's on the docket tomorrow? And if you had a big win, you'd come back and Percy would say, what's on the docket tomorrow? Great. Uh, the next day, uh, I had brunch with Bob. And now I do remember this. Remember how resolute Bob was. Uh, lawyers are filled with self-doubt. Bob was filled with uh, peace and confidence. And when that verdict came in, you know, I think I reacted stronger because it was as if you were telling Bob that the, uh, the earth is round and it moves around the sun. He would say, of course, of course it does. And, and that gave us confidence. He wasn't always uh, calling us and worrying and what's going to happen. He let us do our work and he was confident it would work out. Unbelievable. And some clients, even after a win, they never really accept what has happened to them. They're bitter, angry. Um, how has Bob dealt with it? I know he wrote a book about it. Um, a book. And how has he dealt with it? You know, there, there's, there's no good answer to, you know, why did I get charged? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course it, uh, you know, career wise, he was put on leave and then, then relieved by, by BP. And, um, he's just an inspiration. He's, he's fit. He's trying to, stay positive and uh but but it's got to be tough to be put in that situation where you, you there's no answer to the question why was i charged especially there have been movies made about what happened uh, deepwater horizon was made and they still blame vedrine and kaluza in the movie even though the trial pretty definitively showed that these folks were innocent and Again, we've talked on the podcast, there's no check mark on a verdict form for innocent. It's just not guilty or guilty. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. John Malkovich played Vedrine in the movie. Um, Brad Leland played Kaluza. Who, who should have played Gerger in the movie? Huh, you should have. Um, we, we, uh, we called up the producers of that movie after the verdict because the movie only came out after the verdict. And we offered to talk to them. And they said, no, we've already got our story set. It didn't matter <laughs> to them. Amazing, frustrating. Um, yeah. so, so David, we've all won trials. We should have lost. We've lost trials. We should have won. Um, you know, you've obviously won and lost trials. How do you explain the cases that we win, the cases that we lose? How do you, how do you make sense of it all? This is not a science. No, and um, I don't think lawyers really know. You know, um, there's a lot of good fortune and luck. I can't stress how much of a difference the judge makes. Here we had a judge, Judge Duval, let both sides questioned the witnesses freely. It was very fair in his rulings. Um, very fair. 
judge. And, you know, he even offered to step down from this case because he had some property that had been damaged by the oil spill mm. in Louisiana. And, and both sides says, no, we want you. And I think both sides would say he was an extraordinarily fair judge. So we got fortunate with some rulings from him. Um, we got uh, lucky that we, we found the computer of the drilling engineer. We got lucky that Sean Clark drank so much Diet Coke and we found the Coke bottle. We got lucky that uh, after indictment, so many expert witnesses were willing to help us. The man who designed the blowout preventer was willing to help us and testify that it had not been maintained properly. That wasn't on Bob's watch. That was on other people's watch. We're fortunate that Don Verdreen went the way it did when he testified. Um, we're so fortunate the Coast Guard did its job by tape recording Bob Falusa after the after the accident. But but the scary thing is that Bob was innocent, but he could have been convicted. And there's a lot of arbitrariness to not only who gets charged, but how it turns out. And, you know, to use the hindsight bias point that you've talked about, um, when we win, we think we've done everything right. And when we lose, we, we find reasons why we've lost. But in a lot of cases, it's, it's um, the luck that you talk about getting the good judge or the piece of evidence coming in or finding this or finding that. Hindsight bias is, is uh, unfortunately a very powerful tool. It is, but it's a, it's a highly imperfect system, but, it, but still a, the only one. Well, this system worked in this case, and it worked for you, and it worked for Bob Kaluza. And I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this unbelievable trial and experience. And, and what a case, David. Thank you. Water horizon. Really cool case, and I hope you enjoyed David Gerger as much as I do. He's just such a cool cat and a great guy. He's not just a talented lawyer. He's a talented songwriter and musician. And that song you hear playing in the background right now is a song he wrote about the Deepwater Horizon case. And I'm going to let it play till the very end, and it'll probably go for a while after I speak. But I also wanted to tell you about some of the other people from the Francesco Scalia case that I've been talking about during the cut-ins. Francesco, remember, was an Italian national, and he was forced to stay here. Part of his bond was during the pendency of the case, he had to stay in the United States. He wasn't able to travel back home. His parents came and watched that trial. They didn't speak a word of English, but they sat in the back of the court room every day and listened and even though they didn't understand anything they showed their support and the jury could tell that they were there for him they would hug him every day they were elderly and uh, really supported their son part of our trial team was jen johnston who was a wonderful wonderful lawyer and a great friend and she also worked on the bp case with david gerger after scalia big shout out to jen j joe um judge hurley was great judge as i've mentioned throughout this podcast he listened to that whole trial and would have docket at the end of every uh day and listen to all the motions and arguments that we would do and was very patient with all of us 
I also wanted to talk about a guy named Alvin Enton. Alvin wasn't a trial lawyer in either the BP case or the Scalia case, but Alvin is a trial lawyer that I've known forever. He recently passed away and he was a wonderful guy. Alvin and I had a trial right before the Scalia trial that lasted a month in West Palm Beach leading right up to the Scalia one. And we all stayed in this Marietta hotel and there was a all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet where we would go and eat eggs every morning before trial. And Alvin, after the first trial, came and met us uh, during the Scalia trial a couple times for breakfast because we enjoyed each other so much. He would drive up and we'd have breakfast together before the trial day. And he was friends with my dad and my mom and was a great guy. Uh, miss Alvin Enton quite a bit. Anyway, those are the players, um, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of For the Defense and enjoy the rest of this song by David Gerger. See you next week. Gulf of Mexico, Gulf of Mexico, Gulf of Mexico sky.